Pocket full of some things that are promises. Slow down and move too fast. You have to make the morning last. Just kicking down the cobblestones. Look at the phone, feeling groovy, feeling groovy, feeling groovy. Hello, lamp post. What you knowin'? Come to watch your power flowin'. Ain't you got no rhymes for me? Feeling groovy, feeling groovy. Oh no, I thought I changed the setting in there. I can change that now though. Oh, I forgot the class, oh boy. Did that work? Was I able to update it? Yes, I was able to update it. Ha ha, look at me. Look at me hacking the, the Gibson. I hacked the damn Gibson. Oh, I can't play any shooting fast games, they're too scary. I know people make fun of me for that, but it's not so much that I'm actually scared. I am an adult. It's that it just, I mean, it's meant to make you feel in some way attacked. I mean, that's how you know what to do and who your enemies and your allies are in the game. And that's just a, that is a bad vibe. That's all there is to it. It's just a bad vibe, I think. It's not that I'm actually afraid of getting murdered. But, you know, video game fans have to say things like that to justify their, frankly, childish obsessions. Because they know, as much as anybody who is addicted to the worst aspects of our mass culture know, that it's all gruel, it's all bad for you, it's as, as spiritually carcinogenic as the uh, mass-marketed foodstuffs are literally carcinogenic. Physically carcinogenic. But you don't want to hear it, because who wants to hear that? But I understand I'm addicted to a bunch of carcinogens, and we're all going to get cancer spiritually and physically, but that's okay, because we all, every moment of our lives, have a chance to stop doing that. We really do. That's what I know more than anything. Is that, And that's why, even though I really do think that, looked at objectively, uh, human civilization is doomed in the medium term, and all hopes of revolution are doomed in the in any term. I, I think that that is what the objective reading of conditions will tell you. But that is just the, the, the determined, to determined skeleton of the past. That's just what people did up until now and are going to do. And all we can do is base, make, base our assumptions on what people are doing now and what people are valuing now and how people are living now. And that's the only way we can. But 
And that's that's the only way we, we can create a uh, consensus around understanding the moment because it requires us to filter out any of our emotional truth, which is based on like you know spiritual conceptions. We have to filter that out. We have to. It's inevitable. And what it does is it shows you a a determined structure that has doomed us. But and if you look at it with a, a dead heart and you try to reason your way to a motivation to fight for anything in the future, if you reason your way, you won't be able to do it because there is nothing to convince the brain. What there is is the fact that there is one other fact that is ignored by this, which is every human heart and every human brain is running all day. We're all running on programming. We're all running according to conditioning, but we are also feeling. We are feeling as we are doing that, and that means that we have, with every encounter with the world we have, there is a chance for us to have an emotional response to that moment that makes the world we're in different, makes us perceive the world in a different way, and allows us to act from different motivations than the ones that have been imprinted on us by the culture, the superstructure that is determined by an economic series of relations does to our brain. And that means that there, in every moment, is the opportunity for anything to happen, including uh, the full redemption of the human race, because it's made up of humans. And you have to live it subjectively. You can't look at it at a dry uh, descriptive, because the dry description lacks the an entire half of human experience, which is emotional uh, truth, which is what gives birth to spiritual understandings of wor the world that allow you to operate from different emotional engines, orient yourself around different conceptions of good and bad, because what looks like the end of humanity only looks that way because we're talking about a structure that has been determined over time and has been overdetermined through every reinforcing victory of capitalism in world history, a um, a stimulus response nexus where the own where the vast majority of people, no matter what they think they believe in, are operating in every moment from a narrow pleasure pain uh, decision tree determined not by what is what what pleasure and pain is in a human context, in a human species context, in a global like organic context in a narrow individual pleasure sense, pleasure and pain receptor sense. The thing that it reinforces our illusion that we are separate and that we have separate interests and that we need to have things like capitalism in order to bring our separate interests together and negotiate them and, and work through them. We did. We did have to find humanity through this process of in individualization, but now we've reached the point of maximal atomization where we ha have to transition back to a collective understanding of human value. And if you have a collective understanding of human value, you are oriented towards a pleasure that is not personal pleasure and a pain that is not personal pain. And that allows for the sort of sacrifice and the sort of uh, commitment that we don't have now and that has not dominated the uh, modern 
left-wing and populist movements for the simple reason that the sufficient uh, globalized consciousness and technological sophistication to allow for that hadn't happened. We had to get here, and now we're here. And that means that we, every moment, have the freedom to try to find connection. And if we do find it, if we're able to maintain a psychic connection to others that, that, we, that breaks up the individuated cycle of self-love and self-loathing that drives us towards indulgence and away from reality, uh, if we break that up, then we can act from different principles. We can act differently, which means that the structural conditioning that has doomed us to participate in this slow wind-down of human existence into an, an uh, annihilation can be interrupted, but only for us. And that, and But the, the important thing is, is that even if, if it's for you, then the fact that the structure looks impregnable, the fact that it looks like there's no hope, it doesn't matter. Because winning, no matter matters, no longer matters. You're not, you're not worried about personally surviving. You're not worried about your line or legacy or your world impact being positive. You're just trying to act for what you understand emotionally to be a greater good. I mean, I'm not going to say that I feel that way all the time. I largely don't. But I understand that it's there. And I understand that if I have it in mind when I'm like caught in any kind of decision crisis, that I can use it to push through and not be left to despair and be paralyzed by my surrender to my selfishness. And if you feel that way, and you can, you can look at this structure, this, this determined uh, machinery that is inextricably bound to lead to the annihilation of the human race, and all of life on this planet. You can enliven it with possibility. Because you know in yourself that you can act differently and feel differently than you did. You can look at the person that you thought you were and what you thought was possible and say, oh, I am no longer that person. I mean, obviously, we're always changing. We're never the same person. But there is a fa the fantasy of the self is a fantasy of continuity. And when you have an emotional, spiritual experience, you can look back and see the discontinuity and recognize that person is not really you in a real sense. And that means that you are now a different person. And that means you live in a different reality. And that means that the, the, the uh, overdetermined doom around you is possibility. Because if enough people act from a species understanding, from connection, to from a spiritualized desire to re bring back together the human race, then you will be able to change all of this shit. The only reason, the reason it looks doomed is not because of any of the actual technological or uh, physical structures that we've done to this planet. It's not even the, the global warming that's poisoning us. That's setting the clock. But none of that is determining our fate. We are determining our fate because we are allowing these structures to push us forward Towards our half-hearted deaths. Because we can't conceive of doing anything other than seeking our own pleasure. We cannot imagine anything meaning anything to us more than that. And so we can only try to put off thinking of death by indulging in the moment. And then feeling bad about the indulgence. 
Or if we're of a different cast of mind, if we're, if we're a descendant of Puritans, like many of us are, not even engaging in yourself in pleasure, but in ritually abstaining from pleasure, in, in, in hoarding virtue, as Catherine Lewis said. Either way, you are, you are operating from a, a ant's understanding of, of free will. Everything that is not forbidden is compulsory. And if we're all operating from that, doom is inevitable. But if we know for a fact there are people always who don't operate that way, and that even if we operate that way most of the time, there are moments when our humanity kicks in. And we could, at every moment, conditions can change, because we can never predict specifically how conditions will change, in such a way to unleash a spiritual explosion, a, a, a chain reaction of spiritual enlivenment, an awakening that changes the axis of Earth and puts you in a different timeline. A timeline where all that stuff that looked in the rearview mirror, like capitalism settling its tendrils around the human humanity's throat, the, the Terminator bringing itself into Skynet, working itself to fucking consciousness so they can annihilate everything. It doesn't look like that anymore. It looks like, oh, this is what had to happen for us to all to be able to know one another. We couldn't. The, the, the sheer geography and time kept humanity, for the vast majority of its existence, from truly understanding itself to be a species. Technology, while it has alienated us from one another through, through capitalist dominion over, over the capitalist algorithm of, of, uh, of profit literally stripping our souls, but... It has also brought us into closer connection to each other and, are, and better able to conceive of abstracted humans, strangers, as people, as things we are. We can recognize now, in a way, thanks to that technology, in a way we never could before. And that means that all that stuff that looked like it's capitalism killing us, it was actually capitalism allowing us to, to awaken to our destiny. But that's only if you feel that change in yourself. If you feel that that change is possible by knowing it happened to you. You can't reason your way there. You can't and shan't reason them. No, I am not all or nothing on technology. Uh, I've never been all or nothing on technology. That would be absurd. Like if the Unabomber had a podcast, uh, I've just said that I have tried to highlight the specific way that capital, that technology has been used to strip us fully of our humanity. But it's also connecting us the way that it was promised to. As always, culture beckons us with the liberatory potential of technology, which exists while hiding that the hidden the invisible hand of capitalism that is going to bend it towards its will. So anyway, that's all the way of talks of setting up an introduction to the last two chapters of Eric Foner's Reconstruction. A era that it seems, especially as you read the last two chapters, to have been determined. America's combination of free land in the West, uh, uh, subjection to uh, a London-based global trade order, hugely important, 
um, and just good old-fashioned American racism, which was generated by uh, by the realities of the casted labor of the South, meant that it couldn't have gone differently. But that's because we're looking at it. Uh, we're looking at a failure of spirituality. We're looking at a failure of uh, of the heart. And so, of course, it looks like it could have been any other way. But I think we've talked in the past, in going through this book, points where there could have been difference. Uh, and, and I do really think Benjamin Butler succeeding Abraham Lincoln is a thing that could have significantly shifted the direction of America's political development. Not in a way that would have put us in some flying car utopia right now, but in a much, in a le- it is possible to imagine a less dire moment. And, and, and there is a reality there is a possible of a world that is not this dire. And even if it's still dire, and even if we would all, if we were there now, and, and that other world does exist, of course, the people there now are also feeling miserable and hopeless, probably, and like capitalism is doomed. Unless, of course, you know, they're in the middle of the grand reckoning that would have been kicked off by the crisis of capitalism at the, in the early 19th, 20th century. The one uh, Marx predicted, like Marx's crisis of capitalism happened. It happened from 1914 to 1945, and capitalism won. That, and we've had to deal with that ever since. Maybe that goes differently. Who knows? It's all stuff I'd like to talk about in some form. I really do want to do a lot with the idea of an alternative civil war, just as like a, a ritual practice for myself to imagine differences, to imagine uh, moments where that passion that is born of recognition, overwhelms. There's a section here uh, in, I don't have it, I didn't write it down, unfortunately. Uh, There's a section in this part of the book where it talks about Benjamin Butler uh, giving a speech on the House floor. Maybe I can find it online. On behalf of the uh, Civil Rights Act of, I believe, 1875 or 1877. Uh... And in it, he talks about how he was a, uh, all right, let me see. Hold on a second. I got to see if I can find it. Talk amongst yourselves while I find this. This is not good radio, I'm sure. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry about this. I really want to find it, though. Damn it. I should have written down. I did a terrible job, guys. Sorry. Okay, I think I found it. Here it is. Okay, I find it. All right, so he's describing a uh, a Civil War battle that included black troops. Uh, and it was a, a violent affair that saw a lot of dead. Uh, 500 uh, uh, 
black troops died in this battle. Uh, and here it goes. So he's describing it. It's, it's happened. Uh, they fight. They die. Uh, the North, I believe, wins the battle. Uh, and then Butler says this. There, in a space not wider than the clerk's desk and 300 yards long, lay the dead bodies of 543 of my colored com comrades, fallen in defense of their country, who had offered up their lives to uphold its flag and its honor as a willing sacrifice. And as I rode along among them, guiding my horse this way and that way, lest he should profane with his hooves what seemed to me the sacred dead, and as I looked on their bronzed faces upturned in the shining sun to heaven, as if in mute appeal against the wrongs of the country for which they had given their lives, and whose flag had only been to them a flag of stripes, on which no star of glory had ever shone for them, feeling I had wronged them in the past, and believing what was the future of my country to them, among my dead comrades there I swore to myself a solemn oath, May my bright hand forget its cunning and my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I ever fail to defend the rights of these men who have given their blood for me and my country this day and for their race forever. And God helping me, I will keep that oath. Now, of course, that's demagoguery and flustery and blummery. Uh, and he was a politician looking to uh, make a name for himself, but... He, and he was a crook, and he was a, a spoilsman. But he also fought in a battle and saw people die in front of him, with him, for a cause. And I don't know why you can't explain his career, the, most, the easiest way to explain his career, a guy who was a copperhead Democrat who voted for the South's uh, Democratic candidate, John Breckinridge, in 1860 to becoming a, a radical Republican uh, defender of black liberty the rest of his career, even though he was a congressman from Massachusetts who very easily could have maintained his career by uh, kissing the ass of the Irish, which he did, and who, by the way, were not terribly interested in uh, lifting a finger to save uh, ex-slaves. Benjamin Butler, fascinating character. I'm gonna, I think, I'm gonna take a break. I said from doing the reading club after this week. Uh, I'm, I'm still gonna, we'll do another one. Like I said, I might not want to do uh, reconstruction again, but we'll we'll see. Uh, I'll take requests, but I really want to read his autobiography. I'm very excited about it. He wrote a book, and it's called Butler's Book, which is a, a great name. His father was a pirate. All right. So while I was talking about how, you know, things could have been different, most of the real moments of difference are at the beginning of the war or at the beginning of Reconstruction. Like I said, you put Butler in there after Lincoln with a absolute willingness to confiscate Southern land, to defend the rights of uh, former slaves at, at gunpoint. And maybe you change the dynamic, specifically the economic dynamic, whereby uh, black rights are protected not by the sufferance of the North, but by uh, black political power expressed through land ownership. It's a real possibility. 
But uh, any chance of things to be different was, I think, largely dead in our timeline by uh, the 1873, because it was, I, I would argue, the 1873 panic in the economy, which is what they used to call uh, recessions or depressions, panics. The uh, Panic of 1873, which led to the most prolonged, it's, it was called the Great Depression until we had a, a worse one. Uh, it's a, uh, it was 65 months of economic contraction, the longest in American history. Uh, and it m meant that Reconstruction was doomed. Uh, that was, that put the nail in the heart. If you talk about racism, racism, of course, was a huge, 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 huge problem. The economic interests of northern uh, finance capital, hugely problematic. The liberal ideology of the Republican Party leadership, all problematic. But nothing uh, was worse than uh, the collapse of the economy. The collapse of the economy made all those things uh, insurmountable. In another economic context, they might have been. They might have been. And I think we've talked a bit about ways that you see alternative things, alternative structures emerge. That in a great, in a more robust economic environment, which was totally possible, this stuff, these things were always man-made. They were always decisions by finance to maintain control of the money supply. That was what led to every sustained recession and depression before uh, for World War II. So this man-made, this total shoot-yourself-in-the-foot shoot economic collapse, which was started when uh, somebody wouldn't – when people just – like what happens with all these Ponzi schemes, which is what all American history is – all American economic history is Ponzi schemes. The uh, manifest destiny, the Jeffersonian conception of yeoman freedom is a Ponzi scheme because it always it serves, it always assumes more in that formulation land. Because remember, you don't have one kid in this time. You don't have one kid. Nobody has one kid and then that one kid keeps the land that they live on. People have, populations get bigger. People immigrate. Which means that if everybody to be a yeoman farmer, there has to always be more land. There has to be. And everything is built on that premise. And all of our financial instruments and all of our economic activity in America has ever had has been built on that premise of infinite growth. And these Ponzi schemes all collapse when the inputs fail. And the uh, railroad boom of the post-war era was entirely generated by a cycle of, uh, of inflated stock offerings by these under the, these uh, railroad companies that had no cash flow. No one, none of them were making money. What they were doing was printing stock and then they would sell old, new stock and then use that to buy, to pay off dividends to the old stock. But it was okay because there was always more money going in because the railroads were, the chosen method of economic expansion during that period. Because remember, the Civil War starts this big explosion in uh, capital capacity. It has to go somewhere. 
It went to railroads, and there's plenty of land to do it. But the thing is, there's not necessarily that much money because a lot of these railroads went to nowhere. Nobody was on them, and they didn't do the, And they ended up becoming um, giant white elephants. But it was okay because you could always sell more stock and then use that stock sale to get more uh, to get dividends for existing investors so that they'll buy more stock. Well, eventually, you put some out, and people are like, look, I, it's already elsewhere. It started, actually, in Europe, because at this point, the United States is still not the center of the global economic, the capitalist machinery. It's still Europe. So it starts in Europe, but once Europe stops sending money over here, once Europe stops investing in these bonds, people start calling it in, and the whole thing collapses. Uh, and it, about, it took seven, until 78 to bottom out, and it still, it still kept going uh, from there. What this led to was a price drop, among other things. I mean, obviously, huge loss of employment. Uh, people lost their land and their homes because of for, uh, a giant drop in prices uh, in all sectors. And this ruined agricultural, uh, small farming. And this led to the creation of the Grange. Uh, which was a farmers' cooperative union. First started out in the West, it moved throughout the country. Uh, it also led that urban laborers started to get more militant and started to organize uh, and try to demand more of capitalism. And this led the urban middle class, who had been the and always were the ideological brainstem of the Republican Party, to uh, become super reactionary to start realizing that, oh, maybe we don't all have the same interests. Maybe there are producers and laborers, or uh, capitalists and laborers. And if so, I know where my interests lie. It's not with the dirty laborers. I am, even if I am a mind worker, I know that my allegiance is to capital because these people are more, these are my people. And my livelihood depends on the system that they have created. So you see a rise of trade organizations and associations, political groups, uh, fucking private armies and militias formed of middle-class fancy boys in the cities to put down a lot of the rebellions that come up as a result of people uh, fighting against their immiseration. And it led to a movement in the northern states to restrict democracy uh, and also uh, to, yeah, to limit budgets, limit taxes, uh, extend terms of office, change the jury system. Uh, and the North started imposing vagrancy laws, which if you guys remember, is what the South did in the Black Codes after the war to try to keep control of the black labor force. This is a way to keep control of the northern white labor force, is to say it's essentially illegal for you not to have a job. So Congress tries to add some fucking greenbacks to the system, throw some more cash into the economy, get some liquidity going. But fucking grants... Stung by all the criticism he had received from the liberal Republicans who had bolted uh, to support Horace Greeley in 72, vetoes it, reducing any chance of a liquidity injection into the economy. And as a result of all this, the, 1970, the 1874 midterms are a, do, de, de, are a democratic landslide. Uh, it sees the Democrats retake Congress for the first time since the Civil War. Uh, they win governorships throughout the North. They get, they become, uh, a Democrat is the, becomes governor of Massachusetts for the first time. There had never been one before that. Uh, and what this did was not lead to the South, the Democrats now becoming 
once again, the national, natural uh, party of governance, which it had been before the Civil War, it creates a 20-year period of stalemate. And what, and what it was was 20 years of misery at the base of America. The lower you were to, to precarity, the worse things were in this country. Uh, but, that, but at the top of the elite uh, parties that these base people voted, up, voted for, it was a bipartisan commitment uh, to hard money, deflationary um, orthodoxy which was the exact opposite of what the people who actually voted for these parties largely wanted. Of course, middle-class people, you know, a lot of them, they were committed to hard money for material interests, but a lot of these voters wanted something else. But because of the fact that the, the, the suffering people of the country were divided by race and geography and the conditions of their labor and the, uh, their ethnicity and language... Whereas the bourgeois were unified on all those fronts. It meant that the only uh, parties to actually have influence at the top level of government want to maintain this structure. Uh, and so people voted instead because they were foreclosed. They were foreclosed from addressing their actual pain. They were forced instead to fight on cultural geographic lines. Things like... Uh, um, Parochial education and Catholic Church, uh, things like white supremacy in the South, things like the regional uh, loyalties of the Civil War. If this sounds familiar to anybody, this is exactly what we have now, where our working class, which had reached an articulation sufficient to influence government in the, in the Great Depression, has been de-atomized into total, uh, total passivity and self-conception as consumers. So that is why Mark Carp is 100% correct in that the politics of our moment are not Germany in the 30s. They are the United States, because it's the United States, in the 1880s and 90s. So the Republicans who had uh, set up Reconstruction the way they had on the idea of free labor ideology uh, realized over the course of the depression and the riot and as uh, working class militancy rose around them uh, that, you know what, free, free labor, uh, that's not actually it. You know, there are contrasting in influences, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, interests. There is actually a conflict of interest between labor and capital, which of course was the presiding view of the slavecrats of the South. That's one thing they were demystified on is that they, had, they built a racial category to allow them to hyper-exploit their, la their laboring class. And in so doing, uh, they, but because it was a minority that they felt they could control, they felt that that was uh, sustainable. Uh, and northern industrial middle-class people thought, no, that's absurd. Uh, labor and capital, if they are uh, on equal footing, are uh, seeking the same thing. We're all trying to make each other better off. Of course, this is all undergirded by the ideas of sustenance autonomy in the in the in the in the land, which is gone now. Um, 
So now the Northern Republicans decide to give away with free labor ideology entirely and uh, decide that uh, I guess I'm basically an industrial version of the uh, planters. I guess George Fitzhugh was right. I guess we all we are all are either masters or slaves, and we need to come into harmony with uh, that understanding. We need to say, okay, I'm a master, therefore I will be a good master. Or, okay, I'm a slave, therefore I will be a good slave. And they started organizing their politics and their culture around trying to promote that idea. Because they had been disillusioned by the reality of capitalism after the Civil War. And this definitely meant that they decided to abandon the ex-slaves in the South. So while the Democrats actually kind of lost a lot of their racial edge because they could argue now about the Depression, they didn't have to just use white supremacy to try to uh, get the uh, rubes to vote for them, they had this Depression, which they could just blame on the other side because they'd been in power when it started. So they, they focused on race less. But Republicans in the North became more racially conscious and more, uh, more white supremacist because they were doing away with the free, free labor ideology which, that was always a, a fantasy and which is incompatible with the rising class conflict of the Depression era. So in the South, uh, Grant lets these Southern Democratic uh, machines start taking power wherever they want, even by doing rigged elections and uh, using force. Uh, the government refuses to imburse depositors who lost their savings at the Freedmen's Savings Bank when it collapses. Uh, they, they just, they harden their hearts to the whole thing. Uh, and, of course, the Depression is worse in the South than it is in the North because the economic level of activity is lower. Uh, and there's a huge collapse, of course, in the, the, the railroad uh, industry they have there, but then a huge drop in crop prices, which is the basis for the entire goddamn economy. Uh, and the white yeomen start getting cast off of their land, which will make them ready labor uh, for the cotton textile mills that start going south in the 1880s. Uh, and the rising black political class that had gained some level of influence in the South is destroyed by the Depression. Uh, uh, the Reconstruction governments that still exist are either uh, basically powerless in the face of really concerted right resistance like Adelbert Ames in Mississippi, or in South Carolina, Daniel Chamberlain, uh, you uh, were decided to deal with the rising militancy of the whites by just going along with whatever they wanted. And, uh, and, Dan and Chamberlain uh, in South Carolina starts, he reduces the size of the militia, which is largely black. Uh, he removes black judges. He tries to go bring back convict le leasing and cut uh, education. Uh, and what, of course, were black people going to do? Vote Democrat? They were held hostage, as they have been uh, ever since. The reality of black political organization in this country is that they, because they are the, uh, the negative in the political imagination, like the cultural political imagination of one of the two parties at any given time, 
because white supremacy sort of has to has to be the organizing architecture of the most extreme version of American uh, labor relations, because hierarchy has to be maintained somehow. As we saw with the Civil War, if you if you change the the uh, hierarchy, if you change social relations, you undermine the economic engine of capitalism, and this is what we're seeing here in these last chapters, is capitalism reasserting itself by reasserting white supremacy. So that means that no matter how much the party, whatever it is at the time, that represents black interests, however how much it betrays them, sells them out for other interests, ignores them, they have nowhere else to go because the other party is defined against their interests. And that's what's so funny about the Democrat plantation shit from Republicans. It's like, you're the reason that there is this. Because you're only, your existence is predicated on this. So as a result of this, the small burgeoning black middle class in the South just turns from politics completely. And you see the beginning of what turns into the uh, Booker Washington model of self-improvement and political quietism that's going to be very influential as uh, Jim Crow really solidifies at the turn of the century. Uh, and meanwhile, the white Democrats have decided, fuck the new departure, fuck kissing ass, they're trying to get black votes, they won't vote for us anyway, let's just go all in on white supremacy. And it worked, in large part, because by this point, the Republican Party has nothing to offer the suffering poor white. Neither party is offering any real uh, amelioration of the conditions of the Depression. Meanwhile, the Democrats are offering lower taxes, which, hey, who doesn't want to pay less taxes, and white, a white racial system where you're on top. Because the, re, the, the, rea, the reality of depression, the reality of economic collapse, is that everybody is panicked, by definition, hyper-aware of their precarity, and the Democrats were able to pitch to the white people of the South, in this situation, it is a zero-sum game. One group, the white or the black, will suffer and be dominated in these conditions. Who, who will it be? And because there is no real social connection between the two groups, because it had been forbidden by slavery, uh, in the absence of any other incentives, it won out. Uh, and even the Grange movement, which was uh, not racially motivated in most of the country and, and played a, uh, a role in like, promoting cooperation uh, along axis of, of, you know, actual economic oppression. Elsewhere, in the South, the Grange was completely dominated by the planters. And agricultural interests, which elsewhere meant a, a yeoman farmer, in uh, the Southern Grange meant a planter, because their power was never broken up. So the, the Democratic pitch in the, to the electorate after, the, after 74 is white supremacy, low taxes, control of black labor. Uh, and it led to a huge string of victories throughout the South. Uh, Edmund Davis, Edwin Davis, we talked about, who was a uh, an effective Reconstruction governor of Texas, who uh, cracked down on the Klan and, and protected black rights successfully, got crushed not because of the voters of the people who had uh, put him in changing their minds, but because of a huge influx of white immigrants from the rest of the South. Uh, Throughout the South, two-thirds of the House seats in, the, uh, in Congress went to the Democrats. And, of course, 
The other thing that helped this, a huge wave of violence in the Black Belt, the murder of black and white Republican office holders, uh, the attempt in Louisiana to install a governor through a military occupation that had to be put down by the federal government. That's how confident they felt at that point. And the crackdown on these literal insurrectionists horrified Northern Republican respectable opinion. It was seen as tyrannical. Oh my God, look at the tyranny that you're doing on our American citizens who just want to shoot people and prevent them from voting. And in the halls of power, everybody basically decided in the Republican Party that Reconstruction had been a, a big bungle, waste of time. Grant actually said to his cabinet that he thought the 15th Amendment had been a mistake, that had not benefited the blacks at all, that suffrage, that suffrage had been a mistake. Uh, and they also reasoned, well, we we're going to lose power in the South, but trying to hold power in the South alienates whites in the North. Meanwhile, if we let the Democrats retake the South and we are able to hold our position in the North because we're not now vulnerable to have uh, the charge of being soft on blacks uh, leveled at us, we can get the North. And if, it's what, if, and if it's a solid North versus a solid South, we win because the North has more people and more votes and more, uh, more seats and more patronage and more money and everything. They were willing to make that trade. So while in the uh, while in the last years of the Grant administration, uh, the de the Republicans could only manage to pass a watered down civil rights bill that ended up getting uh, declared unconstitutional in 1883 anyway, even though it had never really been uh, able to have any effect because it always it all depended on being able to file federal charges. That was always the uh, the ameliorative. Uh, mechanism in these bills and why they were all dead letters before they were even fucking published because that ability is a function of one's access to civil society which was denied to former slaves but they were much more effective and much more efficient at, pa at passing uh, a bill that returned species payment in four years. Meaning even though the Depression was uh, wiping over the country, wiping out value, leaving people with no ability to sustain themselves, uh, with little debate uh, and full unanimity almost, the Republican Party passes a bill to say, hey, we're going to be uh, getting rid of all money that isn't backed by gold which means retracting further the money supply, strangling the economy in the, while it was choking to death. Now, the Demo Republicans obviously were horrified by the, uh, by the returns of the midterm when the Democrats swept. But uh, in the Ohio governor's race, where a Democrat was running on cheap money, was running on a greenback platform, uh, the Republicans were able to cobble together a new strategy for winning in the North, even in depression, behind their candidate, Rutherford B. Hayes. Rutherford B. Governor after this. Uh, it, was a saw, it was a very close race, and Hayes won by less than a percent. But he was able to win 
by holding on to the rural Republican hinterland of Ohio, where everybody was a Republican because that's the party that's that was the party that hadn't been shooting at them during the war they fought in, basically. Like in the rural parts of these of the North, and in the rural non uh, mountainous parts of the South, your uh, devotion to the party was simply the fact that you fought a war against those people. You're not voting for them. You don't need any other reason. It's pure identity politics around being a veteran or a family member of a veteran of the war. Because the, the, the plain peasants of the South and North were the cannon fodder of both armies. But uh, Hayes was able to win because in addition to those voters, he brought in that urban middle class who was horrified of the idea of the soft money populism. Uh, and also because the Hayes had uh, stirred up anti-Catholic sentiment about parochial education and uh, priests getting government funds, government subsidy, to uh, whip up the staunchly Protestant middle class who, of course, hated the immigrant hordes from Ireland who, who were in the city, and Germany too, mostly Germany, really. Uh, the Catholic ones, they were largely Catholic. Cincinnati's part of that Catholic triangle of Milwaukee, St. Louis, and, uh, and Cincinnati, where the Bavarians all moved after 48. So the recipe for Northern success for the Republicans is drop Reconstruction entirely so that you don't bring up, so that racism isn't an issue and you don't have to worry about people voting on race. Whip up the uh, urban Protestants against the, uh, the Catholic hordes uh, and rely on the bloody shirt and the sacrifices of uh, Gettysburg to get the, uh, the veterans to vote for you and their families. And that meant that they didn't need to worry about Reconstruction anymore. It, in fact, depended them on sort of writing off the South. Now, in Mississippi, poor Adelbert Ames tries to run a fair election. The uh, northern governor who wanted to see uh, blacks get political rights but was too detached, ineffective, and uh, unsupported by the federal government to allow it to happen. Uh, he, got, he essentially had to stand back while an incredibly violent election saw ma mass violence against voters uh, and the destruction of ballot boxes Stuffing, pure fraud, complete fraud. But there was no, uh, there was nothing else to do, because for the North to aid Mississippi is to hurt them in Ohio. And if it's Ohio versus Mississippi, they know who to vote for. They know rather who the, where the votes and the money uh, and the and the logic of power lies. And so Mississippi had to go. Their fraudulent election was uh, recognized and uh, reconstruction, or reconstruction ended there. Uh, and at this point, there's no other possibility. The structures, the incentive structures are all in the direction of the sacrifice of the freedmen. Uh, all the power pulled in that direction. So that's chapter 11. What are you guys talking about? So the last chapter uh, talks about the real turning point, the, the, the historical sort of coda on Reconstruction, uh, the 76 presidential campaign. 
So Grant is, by this point, completely tarred by a scandal, whiskey ring and whatnot, uh, even though he could have run for a third term and apparently kind of wanted to run for a third term. Uh, he was, at that point, kind of tainted. Uh, James G. Blaine, the man from Maine, the powerful former Speaker of the House, also uh, tarred with a railroad stock scandal. So the Republicans nominate as the compromise candidate the guy who'd saved their ass in Ohio, Rutherford B. Hayes. He runs on good government blandishments, almost completely ignores Reconstruction. Uh, and before the election, they even, in Congress, repeal the Southern Homestead Act. So that no, no, not even any possibility exists for, uh, for ex-slaves to get land. And so that all that rich timber and mining area can be exploited by cor corporate interests. The Democrats nominate New York Governor Samuel Tilden, who is essentially an avatar of Wall Street. He is the personification of finance capital, who supported the, the South in the Civil War and were uh, a, the backbone of the Democratic Party's uh, financial network. Uh, obviously, the democracy was the party of like the the, the, the simple mechanic of the cities, but uh, it was always controlled by capital. Not never not. There was a third party candidate. There was like a Ralph Nader type guy, Peter Cooper, a philanthropist and uh, industrialist in New York, uh, who founded the Cooper Union, uh, and who uh, was who ran on a Greenback Party campaign, or <clears throat> who ran with the Greenback Party, which wanted to inject liquidity into the economy and not see the rise of a new slaveocracy riding over all of humanity, not just Southern blacks. Uh, so there's a governor's race at the same time as the presidential race in South Carolina between the Daniel Chamberlain, the Democrat, or the Republican who just governed to appease the, the Democratic establishment of the South against Wade Hampton, a former Confederate general. Uh, even all of Camp, Camp Chamberlain's blandishments and, and smoochery uh, of the planter elite didn't help him. They still ran Hampton against him because these motherfuckers... There is no degree to which that they will ever accept your capitulation. They want you destroyed. They want their men to be in there. They're happy to take your uh, your cowardice, and and they were they're happy to to uh, compromise you. But they have no loyalty to you, and they will destroy you. And um, so, what's interesting in South Carolina is that for reasons we've talked about uh, that are specific to the economy of rice plantations which dominated in that, that part of the country, or that part of the South, as opposed to large cotton plantations that are closer, that are in, like, the deep South. Uh, black political power is, in anywhere in the South, was most articulated uh, and most robust in South Carolina. Now, part of that is because South Carolina has one of the highest, highest percentages of black population, but that's not the only reason. Mississippi also... I believe Mississippi at that point had a, a black majority in terms of mere pop, of, of real population, uh, but the majority of, of former slaves in Mississippi were former cotton plantation slaves. And as we talked about, cotton planting is uh, de-skilled; de it is unspecialized labor, uh, which uh, means that there is less individual bargaining power within uh, a 
by individual uh, cotton laborers. Uh, rice planting is much more specialized, which means that there's more skill involved, which means there's a greater degree of leverage that can be applied. There's a greater degree of autonomy of labor in conditions and in life for the people who work within it, which meant that when that war ended, oh, and also uh, uh, cotton, uh, uh, cotton labor is uh, because it is unskilled, but it's also uncapital intensive, which meant that the ruling planter elite mainly kept their stuff. They kept control of their uh, land because they didn't owe that much, basically. But, uh, but like pl sugar planting, rice planting is capital intensive. Or no, I'm sorry. Uh, it's not capital intensive. But it is specialized, which means that there was no incentive for capital to go in there because they couldn't get enough, they couldn't get enough surplus, basically, out of the labor that you could get in the cotton cell. So uh, there's much more worker power organized worker militancy and uh, effective ability to negotiate in South Carolina among South Carolina rice plantation workers. During this campaign, rice workers walk off the job for higher wages and demanding cash instead of scrip. And the black power structure that did exist in many of these counties, black judges, black sheriffs, refused to uh, repress the strikers and in fact backed them up. And it led to the planters backing down. And this shows that there was the potential for per independently expressed black political power at the grassroots. But it, was, it ended up being too isolated. But the places it was able to hold on were places where the conditions of labor before the war determined a, a different uh, power dynamic after the war. But even with this, and even though the South Carolina actually sees... Uh, election violence perpetrated by blacks and not just uh, against them. Uh, the sheer uh, overwhelming force of the violence unleashed by Wade Hampton's red shirt militias is overpowering. Uh, and even though Chamberlain gets more votes than any Republican in South Carolina history, he still loses to Hampton in a election that is, of course, racked with fraud and fake balloting, but is ratified as part of the greater deal that we're going to get to because the Hayes-Tilden election ends with Tilden winning in the popular vote and winning many northern states, which had not gone Democratic since the Civil War, uh, but having disputed results in South Carolina, Florida, and, and Louisiana, which allow for the Republicans to claim they had won. Uh, and it leads to a big, a big conflict, people arming uh, on both sides, threatening to march on Washington to impose their guy. But at the end of the day, business didn't want that because business controls both of these parties. So there's no real conflict. The conflict is all made up. The conflict is all a cultural uh, uh, pantomime for these silly uh, sports fans, these blue and gray dipshits who, or, who think this matters. At the top, everyone knows what has to be done. And so Congress passes a, a law to allow an electoral commission because... When you have to reveal the lack of democracy in a system, you do it by appealing to the authority of something that is supposedly transcendent of politics, like the gold standard or an electoral commission, which is made up of members of Congress and Supreme Court justices. Uh, and there's a bunch of jockeying and, and uh, 
grift going on with getting the votes there. It ends with Hayes being chosen by the commission and Hayes mollifying the Democrats in Congress who attempt to obstruct his, his uh, inauguration by signaling with uh, probably things that he didn't put down in writing, but also through appointments to, uh, appointments to his cabinet, that he was going to end Reconstruction. And with Reconstruction off the table, with troops promised in words or not to be removed from the South, the, uh, the Democrats give up their obstruction and Hayes is inaugurated. And so as Reconstruction ends in the South, as redemption, as the, the Southern Democrats called it, spreads across those, those states and troops get pulled out so that there's no appeal to federal authority by any former slave if their rights are violated. They got to go to court. Good luck with that. There's, in the North, the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, which sees, among the same Republic, sees a huge switch in opinion among Republican middle-class voters and intellectuals and politicians in their attitude towards the use of federal troops against American citizens. They've been horrified when Sheridan marched into, Louise, into New Orleans and stopped uh, the insurgents from taking power there. Uh, they were aghast at, uh, uh, when the Klan was broken up by the army in uh, North Carolina. They uh, were absolutely cheering on the army to be used against the strikers. Uh, not enough lead in the world to be poured into those demons. In fact, a lot of these people start forming their own private armies, either funding or, or creating middle-class military uh, organizations to, to fight what they now recognize as a class war. And if there's a class war, they know which side they're on. So while the, the, uh, the Republicans had always balked at doing any kind of concentrated military occupation of the South, they immediately started building armories in northern cities to ensure that if there's any labor unrest, the military could put them down. And this is this railroad strike is the real coming out party for American labor as a political a organized political movement. And it would grow over time to challenge the liberal order, but sadly and tragically, it would do that without the benefit of this huge group of American workers who could have been part of that, uh, that movement, the former slaves. Uh, the mobilization, the, the recognition that comes with, with the increased uh, social intimacy uh, came too late to change the power, balance of power. But if Friedman had been more s supported in asserting their political power on the ground, in the grassroots, then there might have been more robust institutions of black political power to connect with the labor movement when it emerged. So while, the, uh, while labor is being suppressed brutally in the North, the South, Southern governments that are now redeemed, uh, put in institutions of government that essentially try to undo all the progress that uh, had been done during Reconstruction. Uh, the, the school funding, the, the tax, uh, the infrastructure spending, all reduced, taxes cut, spending forced to be reduced, um, reduction in the ability of states to borrow, cutting land taxes for the elite, but raising poll and license taxes, uh, exempting people not for a X amount of 
uh, property, but for in itemized personal property. Uh, and what's the coincidence? The itemized personal property that's tax exempt is the kind of property only used by planters. Because unlike anything that Andrew Jackson dream, Andrew Johnson dreamed of, putting uh, the uh, planters back in power in the South guaranteed that the poor whites that Johnson claimed to support would also be ground under heel. Uh, and black political power is broken by uh, the, the institution of poll taxes, uh, widespread just poll fraud because Democrats controlled the polling uh, states and, and the election boards, and gerrymandering, which we know and love to this day. Now, there were signs, though, that something else could have happened, that there, are, there were meaningful political coalitions that could have emerged, because even this late in the game, even after Reconstruction had disillusioned so many poor whites in the South away from uh, supporting Reconstruction, uh, in, the, in Virginia in 1879, a, uh, a, a fusion group called the Readjusters, who were led by a former Confederate general, and railroad promoter, William Mahomes, uh, who promised to readjust the state's debt so that they could increase education funding, which of course had been kept low by the Democratic governance, uh, and which was powered by a voting coalition of poorer whites and former slaves, won. Uh, and while they were in power, they funded schools, abolished poll taxes, raised taxes on corporations, and reinforced black civil rights. Uh, later in the 1880s, populist Republican fusionists won in North Carolina before being eventually uh, repressed and, and uh, isolated by a unified, coordinated Democratic Party. But the fact that as late as that, you see viable political uh, coalitions that are able to persist in power indicates to me that the possibility, the, the richness of possibility is much greater than looking backward can sometimes make you feel like. Um, so these reconstruction governments, these, these redeemed governments also reinforced control over black labor by more than anything, wildly increasing the penalties for petty theft and bringing in or uh, either reinstituting or expanding the use of convict contract labor. If the private regime of power over black labor was abolished by, slave, by uh, the 13th Amendment, if the assertion of rights by, by ex-slaves and by the progress that uh, Reconstruction had been able to make in, in uh, racial relations made it impossible to do full state violence and full state coercion against all uh, black labor, the law could be used to find a subsection, a necessary subsection of black labor who could be compelled in slavery, basically. And that's what convict leasing was. The, exem the exemption in the 13th Amendment for uh, involuntary labor, labor, labor for involuntary, uh, as a condition of servitude, essentially allowed them to get what they needed. They didn't get what they wanted because there was a successful attempts at asserting uh, black rights throughout Reconstruction that, uh, and was often aided by support in the North that vacillated, but 
and at crucial points came through, they couldn't do what they wanted. But the next best thing was creating huge population of people who were not free because of their prisoner status, which was essentially arbitrary. Because all of these notions of uh, legal power, legal reality, were fraudulent, which is where you get this huge alienation between the Southern black community and notions of legal propriety. It's very funny how one of the persistent stereotypes of uh, blacks is their criminality when that is, in fact, what every element of white society is organized to produce. They are criminal because they are a subject people. And so, of course, they don't. And as a a condition of that, uh, they're not going to accept the validity of your institutions. Why would they? They actually can see the fraudulence of them. So uh, lien laws give landlords the claim over all the cotton cop that is produced, even over the demands of merchants, which means that uh, all the risk of a, of a crop, whether or not it's going to be dis- harmed by uh, by some sort of agri- uh, agricultural failure or whether the price is going to drop, all the risk of, of growing crops is put on the shoulders of the, of the workers and merchants and not on the landlords. What a shock. Uh, and there's an interesting phenomenon where the, so one of the big conditions of this redemption and the, and the depression is that, uh, white smallholders lose their land at a huge clip, uh, and they become the base for a Southern working class to labor in the, uh, cotton mills that start going up in the South in the 1880s. Because before the 1880s, the economic model in the South was we, we make the fucking cotton, but fuck all that making it into anything stuff. That co- that's, too much, that's too much capital. I would like to keep all that capital, please. I would like to sit on that capital as the, as the plantation owner. What, what, it's not my business. If, you have to bring together capital to do things like create a, uh, a system of factories. And why would you want to bring together capital when you are – sitting on top of uh, a uh, self-perpetuating machine of it. So you had to look north or, and certainly across the Atlantic to England for that. But the growth of finance capital in America means that finance capital goes south, which means the, in, in the incentive to, to invest grows, especially as labor militancy in the north grows. And these dispossessed white yeomen become the new working class of these mills. And there is an unspoken alliance between the uh, plantation owners and the uh, mill owners that blacks will work the land uh, along with the whites who have to share crop, but that um, working in the mills is white work, which just very helpfully leads to a situation where uh, the races can be literally um, placed against each other in any labor conflict. And this is how the failure of Reconstruction kind of makes America's politics more reactionary than it would have to be by taking out of political participation 
this group of people whose sense of uh, social solidarity is greater than anybody in the country because they don't have anywhere to go. They don't have anybody to sell out. They don't have any, they don't have any luxury of believing the fantasies of American ideology. And of course, I don't mean that universally, but I mean in aggregate. And by taking that out, by taking that group of people out of politics, you make it more reactionary. And you keep it dominated by a mystified uh, working class and a ferociously capitalistic uh, bourgeois. And that is where we are now. Uh, it certainly does make Andrew Johnson the biggest idiot in the universe because not only did he not get his narrow goal of becoming a two-term president with the aid of the Democrats, but his beloved white, uh, white poor uh, farmers of the South got completely fucking hosed and dicked over. But their decision to choose race over... Uh, over economics was made for them in many ways by the fact that the Republican Party, as Reconstruction were on, ceased to offer an alternative. What else should you be voting for? There is nothing else to seek except for some lower taxes and a race wage. Okay, so that is... Uh, Eric Foner's Reconstruction. I, th I thought that was pretty fun. Good book. Uh, it's a classic for a reason, folks. Uh, next week, I don't know what we'll talk about, but I don't think we're going to do any reading for it. But I'll be here on Wednesday, and of course I'll be here on Friday too. Um, but yeah, Reconstruction. I hope going through that, you see all that there are, there are always chances. There's always openings, because... What we got isn't the worst we could have gotten either. Things could have gone even worse than they did, which means they could have gone better. Butler, man, they offered him the VP spot. God damn it. I'm not in Oregon. Shut the fuck up. God damn it. And now you're going to just not stop saying it because you love trolling. People love trolling. The modern Booker T. Washington, uh, Mike Rowe. Yeah, I mean, I'll say it now, I guess. I'm in California. I'll just say it. You guys have got it out of me. Congratulations. Trust the plan indeed. That's one thing they get right, is that Great Awakening is always going to be the only thing you can hope for. Because nothing that you can sketch out in dry, mechanical language can convince. 
So that's not what you carry with you. What you carry with you is a dream of awakening. And yeah, that is, uh, that's cringe to talk about. That's because you're using something that is not transferable in words. You're using a feeling. And that is what is, uh, that's what's propelling the vision forward. It's just those guys are all uh, deluded weirdos because they're, but the thing is, we're all deluded weirdos. We're all isolated. We're all trying to feel something. And I think we have more ability, thanks in part to technology, to bring our antennas together than ever before. And the QAnon really is a proof of how that is possible. It's a bad example. It's not helpful. But it's possible. Uh, and if that is, anything is. Uh, trust the plan. Bye-bye.